Cheap Talk 71. I wrote a book. Well, not actually me, but this guy. Right, Brian? Yeah, I wrote a book. It's time for some Cheap Talk. You're listening to Trick Chat. You are listening to Cheap Talk, your show all about the band Cheap Trick. And we are here today with the author of, what's the name of the book, Brian? This band has no past. How Cheap Trick became Cheap Trick. And where can folks get it? Anywhere books are sold online. So, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target, Walmart, bookshop.org is a place, is a site for people who don't like Amazon. So today we are doing an episode based on some of the interviews from your book. And it's kind of like, a, I'm going to call it a Whitman sampler of various bits from the book. And uh, this is such a great book. And as you heard on our last episode, you know I love this book. And we are so glad to have the author, Brian Cramp, with us, you know. And uh, <laughs> but, Brian J. Cramp. <laughs> yes, Brian J. Cramp. And all the rest of his personas, Mr. Kahuna and all those things. But uh, here we are. We are back on episode 71, so let's take it away, Brian. Let's play this wonderful episode right here for everyone on Cheap Talk today. Click. Hey, this is Dax Nielsen from Cheap Trick, and you're listening to Cheap Talk. Hello, hello, this is Robin Zander from Cheap Trick, and you're listening to Cheap Talk. So as the subtitle of the book indicates, How Cheap Trick Became Cheap Trick, the book is about everything that happened before those four guys came together as Cheap Trick and then the early years of Cheap Trick from the club days up until when Cheap Trick at Budokan is about to be released in the United States. Telling that story required a ton of research, hundreds of sources, but also more than 80 interviews that I conducted with various people who were connected to the story in whatever way. So what I wanted to do with this episode of the podcast is play for you some selected clips from some of those interviews that I have conducted over the past five years or so. Keep in mind, when I was recording these interviews, it was not for the podcast. It was strictly so they could be transcribed for the book. So I apologize for the sound quality of some of these clips. Some of what you'll hear on this episode is actually quoted in the book, but you will get to hear the person actually say it. But a lot of what you'll hear was not used for the book. So I have the book right here. And if we look at the table of contents, I named each of the chapters after a short quote from a Cheap Trick lyric from this time period. So chapter one, which tells the story of Rick Nielsen's father, Ralph Nielsen, and Rick's parents opening a music store in Rockford, I tell a, I give a brief history of Rockford, Illinois, and sort of Wisconsin and Illinois, and talk about the collision of the baby boom generation with the Beatles and the British invasion. The title of chapter one comes from a cheap trick song called Fan Club. Like and I have a clip that I can play for you here 
part of this actually appears in chapter one of the book. Here I am speaking with Dwayne Huey, who was actually a member of Robin Zander's very first band called The Destinations. But this is me asking Dwayne about Robin's father. Robin's dad was a musician, right? Oh, yeah. He played out at the uh, Rockford Airport in the lounge. Uh huh. He played piano? He played keyboards. Keyboards, yeah. And he used to play, he played at the ice skating rink, too, right? I believe so. I I can't attest to that, but yes, I believe he did. And he played all by ear. Really? I remember that. That was just amazing to me that he could do it that well by ear. Oh, so he played at the lounge, but he didn't read music. He just played it by memory. Not that I'm aware of. I know that he had stated that he played by ear, and that's the way he learned. Um, Now, he may have at some other time used sheet music or charts or something, but I don't know of him personally. I was just in awe that the man learned what he played as well as he did from memory. Right. Moving on to chapter two of the book. Chapter two is named for a quote from a cheap trick song called Hello Kitties. So you miss some school. And chapter two covers the early bands that the guys were in. Rick Nielsen's band, the Grim Reapers, Tom Peterson's band the Bull Weevils, Bunny Carlos's band, the Pagans, and Robin's band, the Destinations. And what I have for you right here is a clip of Jim Zubiena, who was the drummer in an early version of the Grim Reapers with Rick Nielsen. Ken Biggis, I, I used to do a terrible thing to him. And it's probably why he quit the band. Uh-oh. <laughs> oh, God, what I, I, it was terrible. What was that? We Now, the band was just... And I remember doing this. We were in that basement. You, did you see the pictures I sent you? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, the picture, the picture in the in the dungeon down there, where Joe and Gary's there. Well, this is before Joe was in the band. The band was Willie, uh, myself, Ken Vegas, Rick Nielsen, and Gary Shooter. That was the band, uh, and it was kind of a, a charming time. We would be playing a song, and in between songs, I would reach forward with my drumstick and turn off Kenny Vegas's amplifier. <laughs> and we'd do two or three songs before he would know it. <laughs> and it would really piss him off. But the truth of the matter was, he didn't add anything to the group. <laughs> and I used to shut his amp off, and I did it, and then finally, he, he just quit the band. And I don't, know if he qu- I don't know if he quit the band because I was turning off his amp, or if he quit the band because he realized we were moving on and he was unable to follow this next clip is robert langenberg who was actually a member of rick nielsen's very first band the phaetons but this is robert talking about the band he was in with tom peterson called the bull weevils tom's mom because we used to put we play in my backyard you know uh-huh and we, we do like a party in the backyard and set everything up and play and we were doing um Tom's mom made these green fuzzy vests for us to go with the whole evil theme. Right. <laughs> Up next is a short clip of Craig Myers, who was in the Bull Weevils with Tom Peterson, along with Craig's brother, Mike, who he's talking about here. 
he would drum and I would play a nylon string guitar and then he would sing backup harmony to me and we'd 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 go down to the basement and try to try to do Beatles songs, you know, the two of us just love loving music, you know. Moving on to chapter three, which is named for a quote from the Cheap Trick song, He's a Whore. This chapter tells the story of the Bull Weevils turning into a band called Toast and Jam and a new version of the Grim Reapers, which included vocalist Joe Sundberg, who had been the singer for the Bull Weevils. He had replaced Robert Langenberg in the Bull Weevils. We get an introduction in this chapter, I believe, to Ken Adamani, booking agent and promoter who would become Cheap Trick's manager. At the beginning of the chapter, we hear the story of the Grim Reapers waiting at the factory in Madison, which was owned by Ken Adamani, where they were supposed to open for Otis Redding and the Barcase, but that was the night that Otis Redding's plane crashed into nearby Lake Monona. This is Grim Reaper's drummer Jim Zubiana talking about that night. We didn't know what was going on. We're like, why haven't we started this? Why haven't we done this? Where's Otis? Blah, 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 blah. And then they call us into, Kenny, Ken Adamani called us into the office, told us that his plane crashed, and we were like, oh my God. It was devastating. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then the fear of what's going to happen, because remember, this is a time when, when riots were happening for just the drop of a pin or something like that. So I was actually concerned that there was going to be violence as a result of this when, when, the, when the thousand people who were lined up on the sidewalk outside freezing their ass off heard somebody out with a loudspeaker out of a second floor or third floor window telling what happened and what actually happened when that was verbalized was an en masse sigh and then people cry. Right. Nothing else, just that. The Grim Reapers were on the bill with Otis Redding the night he got killed. Yeah. And that's kind of bizarre. Yeah, the name that's of the band. That's kind of weird. Yeah. Exactly, right. So we ended up playing the gig without them. So that was it. You know, we played that gig. We were all very, very disappointed and sad about what happened. I still get sad thinking about it. Yeah, it's terrible. That yeah. moment, we were looking forward to to listening to live, opening for, and what at that point in time was the most powerful, emotional singer in the world. Like I said, Chapter 3 also tells the story of a new band that Tom Peterson and Craig Myers formed after the Bull Weevils called Toast and Jam. So I'm guessing Joe left to join the Grim Reapers and that's when you became Toast and Jam? Is that how it worked? Or? Yeah, he, he, well, he left to join them. Yeah, and, and so Tom and I were close. My brother was uh, graduating high, had graduated high school now and, you know, Vietnam's raging now. We're talking like 66, 67, so he had to join rather than be drafted. So he was gone. He was or about to go soon. But Tom and I stuck together, and we formed a... I started to... Uh, I got a copy of uh, John Mayles' Blues Breakers. I don't think anybody else had that. Yeah, John Mayles' Blues Breakers with Eric Clapton. It's a classic. Uh, right. The Beano album, they call mm -hmm. it. Yeah. I had a copy of that. I don't think anybody else, even in the around here, I don't know, maybe Chicago, but I know no one around here did because nobody played guitar like that at all. The, the most 
the guitar around here was pretty simple, and it was all that poppy, beatly, you know, Dave Clark Five-ish type stuff. It was all it was just, nobody was playing fluid leads like that, and we none of the kids, uh, you know, in my school and in, in my pocket, uh, you know, knew anything about blues or anything. So, but I got a copy of that record. And it was English, so I was interested in it. Anything English I was interested in at the time. And uh, all my influence went to England. I wasn't crazy about what was happening, like uh, Starship or Jefferson Airplane, stuff like that. It wasn't working for me, the American music, as well as the British stuff was with, you know, with Clapton and Jeff Beck with the Yardbirds. That kind of stuff was really the big influence on me as a guitarist. So, uh, and Tom was right there, too. He liked that same kind of music too so he, he became my bass player he would be rhythm guitar but he became a bass player and we formed a band called Toast and Jam which was doing blues and uh, that's where I kind of got the jump on everybody else in this area eventually led to Fuse but that's how I got the jump on everybody playing what became the standard rock and roll style of playing which is all blues stolen you know right. what I'm saying yeah okay yeah. so I was able to do that in 67 so I learned how to do it, and, you know, quivering, you know, with the, the vibrato and the strings and stuff like that. Nobody did that around here. I learned to do it. And, uh, you know, kind of like Tom and I were really sailing along, but we had a band called Toast and Jam. With Ron Holm was the singer, played harmonica and acoustic guitar, too. Curtis Wright from uh, Beloit, Wisconsin, played keyboards. Let's see. Uh, Ron Holm is that? So is that like H O L M E? Or I think it's H O L M. Okay. Ron Holm. Uh, he works for. The, he has a job in Rockford uh, for the county. He's, he's a superintendent of something. I'm not sure what, but he's still around. He still performs with acoustic guitar, sort of folky stuff. So Craig just talked about Ron Holm, who was the singer for Toast and Jam. Let's hear from Ron. Do you remember any of the specific songs that were in your sets? Yeah. I remember one in particular that was kind of our signature piece. It was our arrangement of Backdoor Man. Among other people, The Doors recorded that song. We had a totally different take on it, and it was more up-tempo. Backdoor Man is... the, the, the con- the, the typical arrangement of it is kind of sleazy and a little bit slow, and ours, we, we just moved it up a little bit. And the thing was that Curtis Wright was, among other things, and he, he was large. He was a big guy, but he was, he was a very adroit dancer. And in the middle of Backdoor Man, Chip would play a drum solo, and Curtis would not just jump off the stage, he would do a complete 360 somersault off the stage and then go into a St. Vitus dance. <laughs> <laughs> it was quite a, quite a hoot. Now, one very important development that came along with the formation of the band Toast and Jam is that this is the moment when Tom Peterson switched from guitar to bass. Well, the, I want to, before I forget, I want to ask you, uh, so the Tom Peterson switching from guitar to bass, 
how yeah, exactly how him. how exactly did that happen? Was it just out of necessity or? Yeah, well, it was kind of out of necessity, and it was a way to. He was. We needed a good bass player because the music we were attempting, like Yardbird stuff, had real good bass playing. So we needed a good bass player, and he he was willing to do it, to uh, out of necessity, but also very willing. He was. He just got very good at it very fast. It was like me on guitar, you know. I learned how to play tune the right way and got good fast. And he was the same way. And we'd spend all our time together. So after school, we'd be in, you know, like if we were at my house or his house most of the time in the bedroom and there were a couple of guitars there, he'd be, he'd be playing bass parts and I'd be playing guitar parts. And, you know, it just came from knowing how to play and predict each other, which really was the key to Fuse was the, the, the fellows that I met in Toast and Jam, for me it was the key to Fuse because Chip, Tom, and myself could pick a key and jam for hours and not sound like it wasn't rehearsed. Mm-hmm. We could nod for changes and stuff and we just had this... We we came we could predict what each other was going to do and it, it became sort of like a uh, an unnatural chemistry that, that people just don't get very often. It was special. And you and Tom, you went you saw the society. Did you see the society together? And then you stole Chip from the band. Is that yes, yes, okay. pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I think the one, the one of the guitarists wanted to pound me or something. <laughs> they were mad. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think he said he was going to break my fingers. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's when Tom switched from guitar to bass. Was at that point, which is pretty interesting. And um, it is particularly since he became. Maybe that's why he's such an innovative bass player with his eight-string bass and his twelve-string bass. Yeah, right. Because he started on guitar. Yeah. Yeah. And one thing I remember about him, even back when we played, he was uh, he was so innovative. And uh, I remember there was a song that the Yardbirds did, and it had a really fast bass lick. And I didn't know how anybody would play that lick. They did, but <laughs> but uh, he just whipped it right out, just played it right away. But he played it with a flat pick. Uh huh. Which would be, and to do that with the fingers, the way a typical bass player would play, would would be kind of a be quite a challenge. But he flat picked it. it, it I'll I'll hum you the riff. <clears throat> it went over and over like that, and those kinds of quick notes are are really hard with the fingers. But he just went up and down double picking with the flat pick sounded fine and he was that way he struck me uh from the beginning of when we were playing as uh you know quite a quite a talented uh fella right yeah yeah craig described how that him and tom and chip he said they could just jam for hours and just not sound like it was rehearsed that's the way he described it yeah uh, all three of them were that way, and I'm glad you mentioned Chip because I I was uh, I mean I kind of felt like I fell into a group with uh, with these super talented people, all with their own uh, their own style, their own sensibility, and Chip with his double bass drums, and Craig had a great stage presence. He Keep his he'd sling his guitar low, extend the strap, and 
he had an interesting stage presence that way, and then he he really had a great feel for those blues licks. Yeah, that were we were learning at the time. It was it was something. Toast and Jam really doesn't last very long because what happens is Rick Nielsen and Joe Sundberg from the Grim Reapers decide that they want to pursue writing original music. And they Rick Nielsen has seen Toast and Jam and realizes that the musicians in Toast and Jam, Craig Myers on guitar, Tom Peterson on bass, and Chip Greenman on drums, are great. And he wants them for his band. But anyways, we were doing uh, uh, bluesy style music, which none of the other bands were still, were still pretty much just doing top 40 stuff. So we kind of like, kind of like established that style of music and people people around here had never really heard it. So it was catching on kind of slow, but it was catching on. And there were people that were starting to pay attention to the way I played guitar, which helped me a lot, you know, spurred me on. So that's, that right about then, uh, that's kind of what led to uh, to Fuse because uh, Nielsen and my brother, who'd just gotten out of the service, I believe, came up or, or was just getting ready to go in and whatever. But Rick Nielsen and my brother Mike came up to the Dalton Youth Center in uh, I think it was in Rockton. He was either in Rockton or Beloit. The Dalton Youth Center. Tosin Jam was playing there. And they came up and heard the band, and Rick was kind of floored, and he want, he, he talked to me after that about uh, forming a new band with him and Joe and Tom and myself. And I had a drummer, Chip Greenman, was the drummer for Toast and Jam. And uh, I kind of discovered him at, a, at the Lumpus Room, which was a local place, too. Mm-hmm, right. And uh, I heard him playing with a band called The Society. Okay. <laughs> and Tom and I were floored at how much talent he had. Drummers back then just kind of went, you know, they just did do, do, that's about all they could do, you know. And uh, Chip was Buddy Rich inspired. So he had all this technique, which, you know, we hadn't seen technique at all. So <laughs> he, he floored us, and we we were doing stuff like, uh, Tosin Jam was doing stuff like Hendrix. Uh, we'd have the singer and the keyboard player would take a break. Tom would sing it. We'd do it three-piece, you know, guitar, bass, drums. But we were doing it convincingly. So uh, that kind of led to Fuse. Rick was kind of floored by the band he heard, and uh, he decided to, to, to join up with us. So realistically, you had the bass, drums, and guitar from, from Toast and Jam is what was Fuse. Right. Rick played keyboard and Joe sang. Now, if Rick Nielsen was going to form this new band with the guys from Toast and Jam, that meant that he was going to have to break up the original version of the Grim Reapers. We were rehearsing in the basement of Ross's dad's doctor's clinic. And I walked in for rehearsal, and everybody was being weird. And I said, what's going on? And they said, we're breaking up the band. That was it. We're breaking up the band. And that was was because... Because Rick and Joe were going with those other guys? I, I don't know. You'd have to ask them why the band broke up. Um, I don't actually know the reason. Um, there was no tumultuous event that caused the breakup. I just walked into rehearsal unbeknownst to me what was going on. So it had to have been something that had been in plan that, that was kept from me personally. And from Ross, too, I would assume. And we showed up, and they said, we're breaking up the band. Okie dokie, bye. 
Packed and, up my drums and took everything home. Well, must have been pretty disappointing, or were you ready for it to be over? I was surprised. Yeah. Uh, you know, I had another life besides that because the I, I basically that's what I did. I became an actor. That's what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to be an actor. I never looked at what we were doing like Rick Nielsen did. Rick Nielsen looked at it like it was going to be his profession. Right. He had every intention of making this what he was going to do the rest of his life. I had no intention of doing that, right. none whatsoever. Right. Now, Rick Nielsen is bringing along his singer from the Grim Reapers, Joe Sundberg, to this new band. So what does that mean for Ron Holm, who's the singer of Toast and Jam? When the opportunity for Toast and Jam and the Grim Reapers to peel off some members and fuse, <laughs> uh, fuse in- <laughs> that's a good that's a good pun. <laughs> I, like, I might use that. <laughs> fuse into a new band came up. The notion that I that we discussed. I don't know what all they talked about with with uh, the Reapers, but the the notion we talked about with Toast and Jam was that uh, we would do something kind of unusual. We'd have two singers, and and I would uh, Joe and I would try to work out duets and harmonies. And I was also a still am a uh, a harmonica player. So we could, you know, have me play harp and, and do that grungy blues stuff uh, in addition to what whatever else. And uh, so the first rehearsal happened, and I sensed that this this was going to be a lot of work. <laughs> and, and I was up to my ears. I majored in math, uh, math came easy to me, relatively speaking. Uh, it was the only thing I had a sort of a, a knack for academically, but, it, you know, it still takes a lot of work, and then commuting to DeKalb and stuff. Uh, so I wasn't really sure how this duet, duet thing was going to work out and how much work it was going to be or if the band, as it was developing, was even going to really want to move in that direction. So to be blunt, and I, and I, I hope if you include this, uh, you can find a really nice way to say it. Uh, I just didn't go to the next rehearsal. <laughs> I, I think that that probably was just fine with them because obviously they went on and did fine. But here's what I'm getting at. I had a draft deferment. Right. And if I tried to do music full time, I entered into a whole different world of draft letters, draft physicals, and then maybe going to the service. Right. And uh, so, uh, looking back, uh, it all you know, I, I, I'm I'm happy with more than happy with my choice, but it was so looming. It would have been nice to have been able to do rock and roll full-time at the time, but because of Vietnam, who knows how that would have turned out. Moving on to Chapter 4. Chapter 4 is named after a quote from the lyrics of the Cheap Trick song, 
Oh boy. So that band, Toast and Jam, merging with the Grim Reapers, Rick Nielsen and Joe Sundberg from the Grim Reapers, that band ends up landing a record deal with Epic Records and changing their name to Fuse. Chapter 4 is about that. In Chapter 4, I also talk about Gary Shooter. I haven't mentioned Gary yet. Gary was a member of Rick Nielsen's very first band, The Phaetons, and he was the original singer for the Grim Reapers. Gary ended up being sent into ground combat in Vietnam, and I did my best to tell the story of what happened to Gary. One quote I can play for you that part of this actually appears in Chapter 4. This is Paul Hamer, who later formed Hamer Guitars, talking about Fuse. And I'm, I'll never forget the way they walked into the show that night, because we, we had to get there early to set up all of our stuff, and... When they walked in, it was like uh, they looked like they were from England. They they looked like the Beatles. They they all dressed in you know in very unusual clothes. The, their girlfriends were the prettiest. Uh, they showed up in a real car, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and then they played great. Moving on to Chapter Five. Chapter Five is named for a quote from the lyrics of the Cheap Trick song, "Hot Love." So a lot of Chapter 5 is about the summer of 1970 when all of these promoters across the country were trying to mount these rock festivals to cash in on the success or inspired by the success of Woodstock, even though this was after the disaster of Altamont. And Fuse played or tried to play at several of those rock festivals. And it's a very entertaining story of how these promoters tried to put on these festivals across the country and the local people where they tried to mount these festivals, the locals in those areas, were very much against having this festival come to their neck of the woods. And Chapter 5 also talks about a band called Friends, which featured Robin Zander and Bunny Carlos. And I talked to Rick Pemberton, who was also in that band. And Rick told me about another band of sorts, that he participated in with Bunny Carlos, and Robin Zander was also involved, and that was called Buns Carlton's Air Farce. Yeah, Air, Air Farce was, was, was uh, well, Bun, Bunny would sit with a tape recorder, and then I'd, I'd come over and, and try and, he'd play, play guitar, and, and, then, and then I'd try and play some lead guitar on top of it, and we'd play some blues stuff, Robert Johnson stuff, or, or some Rolling Stones stuff. And uh, then from there, that evolved to like, okay, let's get maybe a couple other people. Let's get someone who's a good singer. So we would often get, we'd either get, uh, obviously, Robin or Zeno. Right. And then, uh, or even Joe Sundberg from uh, from Fuse. Mm -hmm. How many chords did he have? Regular ending, just like the record. One chord in there. One chord, three A, G, three G, A, 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 three G, A,
to chapter six which is named for a quote from an early cheap trick song called you talk too much chapter six covers a new version of fuse which rick nielsen puts together with the singer and drummer from todd rundgren's band naz stuki and tom mooney and another band that is talked about in chapter six is a band called tunes that included Robin Zander, along with Craig Myers, who was the guitar player in The Bull Weevils, Toast and Jam, The Grim Reapers, and Fuse. And another member of Tunes was Rick Pemberton. We had another band. It was called Tunes, and that was Robin and, and Craig Myers and Chip Greenman and Mark Dahlgren. That sound right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. How did that band come together? Do you remember? I forget if it was Craig. Craig and I hung out a little bit at the time. You know, and Bunny was still kind of at this time too, 1970, 71, 72. Bunny was doing these things with like Nielsen and Craig Myers and and either Stooky or whatever, and they they just get together and play play somewhere, play at a high school or something, or a dance or something like that. Right. So there's a, a lot of uh, intermingling, you know, a lot of, uh, oh, just get together and do this, you know. And, you know, that I was involved in some of it, and then I, I wasn't involved in, you know, all of it either. But So they were doing that. Let's see, I don't know, maybe Craig, Craig, and, and, Craig and I and Chip Greenman, maybe started jamming. I was playing bass, Craig was playing guitar, Chip was drumming. Uh, I think maybe, I think maybe somehow Mark Dahlgren came in next, and then we needed a singer, so I said, well, I know Robin. And, you know, they didn't know Robin, so. Okay, so you, so brought, we, you brought Robin to... So to I brought choose. Robin okay. into that. So we rehearsed a lot and played about two or three times that particular, that's the five of us there. And then whatever, either someone left or people lost interest or something like that. Moving on to Chapter 7, which is named for a quote from the cheap trick song, Mandicello. 
Chapter 7 covers the time period when Rick Nielsen and eventually Tom Peterson and Bunny Carlos moved out to Philadelphia, formed a band called Sick Man of Europe with Stuky from Naz on vocals, and they were all working at a club called Artemis. And one person they met when they were out in Philadelphia was a drummer named Hank Ransom. Rick, Stuky, myself, and my brother, my twin brother, bass player, John, Mm-hmm. went into the studio and laid down, you know, some studio tracks for Columbia. You have that? Wow. So are the are those? I have some recordings of three songs. I think. Um, I'm a surprise. I'm a surprise. Bean, and um, is the other one ain't got you? Ain't got you. Yeah. Right. That was a Stooky, right? Yep. And Cotton Kent playing piano too, right? Cotton Kent, my keyboard player, quick. Yeah. So you're playing so, drums. You're playing drums on those Sick Man of Europe recordings. Okay, wow. And it was like an audition for for Columbia Records, something like that. No, we recorded the we recorded the stuff in Philly. Those four demos. Shipped them to all the you know A and R guys in New York. And Columbia Epic caught no notice of it. Then we went to New York, and we went into Columbia Studios and uh, recorded the, uh, the 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 four demos. <laughs> We've made it to chapter eight, which is actually named for a quote from the lyric of the song that the song we just heard turned into. So that was I'm a Surprise by Sick Man of Europe. That was the demo recording that we heard Hank Ransom talking about that he played on. That song was eventually turned into the cheap trick song So Good to See You, from which chapter eight got its title. So at the beginning of chapter eight, the guys have moved back from Philadelphia to Rockford. And one amazing thing that happened to me 
over the course of this journey of writing this book is I had this three and a half hour meeting with former Cheap Trick manager Ken Adamani and Cheap Trick drummer Bunny Carlos. And here we have a clip from that meeting where Ken is talking about right after they moved back from Philadelphia, they fired Stuky, and now they needed a new singer. And this is Ken talking about ideas that Rick Nielsen had for who might be the new singer of the band. And you'll also hear Bunny Carlos in this clip. We're talking about Rick coming back from Philadelphia. Here's a note. I'm back from Philadelphia. Next day, he wants me to find the singer of the Lemon Pipers and also the singer for One-Eyed Jacks. So he was looking, you guys were looking for a vocalist. The Lemon Piper guy, he was looking for that guy before Stooky. Yeah, because he was looking for that guy back in the late 60s after Green Tambourine. Because he told everybody in town about it. I remember. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And in Chapter 8, we finally get to the formation of the original version of Cheap Trick, which was Rick Nielsen and Buddy Carlos, along with a bass player named Rick Zuluga and a singer named Randy Hogan, who Rick Nielsen renamed Zeno. Basically, what we did was uh, I got a call from Bun, and I came over and started rehearsing with the man. We rehearsed in, in uh, Rick's parents' garage, and we just took it. They took out records, and we listened to records, and stuff that they knew, all the British stuff, of course, you know, Tom and Rick had lived in London, and uh, we listened to, you know, Jackie Lomax and, and The Move and some of these things, and uh, basically picked songs that had been hits in England, and that basically was our, our set list for the most, most part. Let's hear what Ken Adamani remembered about his introduction to the band. Uh, I remember Rick called and said, we finally got the band together and come down to a rehearsal. Was at Spring Creek Road, fifty one oh five. Yeah, his garage, forty one oh one Spring Creek. Yeah, four fifty one oh one or forty one. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Yeah. And it was you, Saluga, Zeno, who I'd never heard sing before, and Rick. And they played a bunch of songs. And I, said, I like it. I really liked it a lot. And we started booking, yeah. but they were so different, very difficult to get them in places. Fortunately, I had an agency with some bands that were really popular. Dr. Bob and the Headliners, 50s band, popular Z- and all over the country. Too, yeah. We opened gigs for Dr. Bob, end of the fall, I remember that year. I know we did some rock and roll festivals where we, it was like, Ken was like, get out all your rock songs, get rid of all that other stuff or they're going to kill you. You know, we did, you know, just Louie Louie or whatever, to think money, you know, and that kind of stuff. And uh, we get up there and, yeah, you know, Dr. Bob opened a a f- more than a few doors for us. Huh? We did a benefit here, I remember, one night in the winter. We were still working with them in that winter because it snowed one night here in Madison. We did some benefit with them. Yeah. So in that clip, we heard Ken and Bunny both talk about a band called Dr. Bob and the Headliners, a band that Ken Adamani managed early on and a band that Cheap Trick opened for several times at the very beginning of Cheap Trick. I also spoke with Al Craven, who was the singer for Dr. Bob. Uh, Ken and Bunny both said that Dr. Bob opened a lot of doors for Cheap Trick. That's pretty straightforward. I'm glad that he's, I'm glad that that's, he was open about that. Yeah, right. So Yeah, so, I mean, uh, Dr. Bob was the hammer of the agency. As they, 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 I don't know if you know what that term means, but Dr. Bob was the hammer for, for Ken so that he opened the door for any of his other groups 
Yeah, but the thing about it is, I, I'm hesitant to say this because I don't want to sound boastful. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, I understand. Yeah. Now, Rick Pemberton was actually at the very first Cheap Trick show. Actually, it was before they were even called Cheap Trick. At the first show, they went by just Reapers. No the, no grim. I actually have an ad for that show. It just says Reapers. But that was the first show of the band that was Rick Nielsen, Bunny Carlos, with Zeno and Rick Jaluga. It was in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin in June of 1973, and Rick Pemberton was there. Were you at the first Cheap Trick show? Or? Yeah. Yeah, really? Yeah, I, I, I can say I was at the very first Cheap Trick performance, and I helped them carry their equipment upstairs. At the top deck? Including a, p- a piano and a Mellotron. <laughs> <laughs> Would Zeno Even play those? Rick, Rick played a little. Okay. I mean, the the early cheap trick, a little bit, little mishmash of this and that, and then they figured it out pretty quickly. It was what soon turned into you know what what you would know as cheap trick. So that version of cheap trick formed in June of 1973, and by November of 1973, Tom Peterson had replaced Rick Jaluga and become the bass player for Cheap Trick. And an early gig they did with Tom Peterson was called the Rock and Roll Revival. It was that same month, November, and Cheap Trick were actually the backing band for Chuck Berry, Bo Diddley, Freddie Cannon, and Del Shannon. When we met Bo before the show, I have a tape of us meeting Bo. I turn my tape recorder on, he goes to Ricky. I got a big tree I'm gonna chop down and make a guitar of this all. And Rick goes, Bo, this is Bun. I go, I'm the drummer. I says, Tom Tom's on Bo Diddley beat. Don't play none of that Tom Tom shit. <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? <laughs> Just play your own funky beat. Moving on to chapter nine. Chapter nine is named for the lyric from an early cheap trick song called Number One that eventually became the song Love's Got a Hold on Me on the One on One album. You're not the last one. And chapter nine is the chapter when Zeno ends up leaving the band. And it was approached by some of the people in the straight up band and they were looking for, you know, they were looking for a singer. And I was at a place in my life where I wanted to get away from the people I was working with. I wanted to get the hell out of the town I was in. I'd never been anywhere or anything. I loved the Twin Cities. And, uh, you know, they called me and they bugged me about it. And eventually I just made a decision, you know what? I'm leaving. And I remember having that conversation with Ken Adamant and he was adamant that, you know, you know, because he put a lot of time and effort into it, obviously. That, no, it's, you know, I'm not going to let you go. And I remember my, my reply was, what are you going to do, stop you from getting on the plane? Right. I'm leaving. Right. <laughs> I'm out of here. I don't want to do this. And so, yeah, so you just, you had a better offer. At the time, it was a better offer, <laughs> right? Oh, yeah. And for, for, and for a while, we were rivals because we had this big show. And I remember playing down at the Stardust Lounge at Rockford. Ken was there. And he's looking up and down. He's looking at me. I'm looking there. He's watching the show. It's like, you know. It was it was a pretty cool thing. Unfortunately, it was mismanaged and it lived its life. But uh, I'm still close with most of those people. We still talk, you know. So your last gig, I have it was October 12th at East High School in Madison. I recall that. Yes, I stayed in Madison that night. Hopped on a plane. Uh, it was like a a prop plane. Flew me to Iowa. From there, I made a. a a, um, no, I'm sorry, yeah, flew me to Iowa from there. I, I made a stop over and flew right to Minneapolis. And the guys that straight up picked me up and take me out to Minnetonka where I stayed right away. Yeah, um, that I was, was still actually... wearing my stage clothes. 
<laughs> oh, really? <laughs> when you're on the plane? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Moving on to chapter 10. Chapter 10 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Look Out. Chapter 10 is when we finally see Robin Zander join the band, and now we finally have the classic lineup of Cheap Trick, the lineup that will go on to become my favorite band of all time. Toward the end of Chapter 10, we hear from a fan of Cheap Trick from back then, from the mid-70s, a guy named Chris Crow. That's the perspective I've been looking for with other people I've been talking to. I asked them, you know, weren't they, didn't they seem like an odd band? Weren't they weird at the time? And most people are just saying, no, I didn't really think that, but they had to be. No, they were weird. Yeah. They were fuck, fucking weird. Yeah. It was, you know, dark, underground, pained stuff, a lot of it. Uh, you, know, a lot, you know, the popular stuff, you know, was salted through it and came, but, but, but I think what made them stand out is that they were, <laughs> you know, they were, they were not being commercial. They were being, you know, the stuff they were writing and all of that. I mean, Jesus Christ, the Ballad of Richard Speck, as it was once called. Yeah. <laughs> cleaned up for legal reasons. That, that was, that tone, the tenor of that song was, uh, you know, very idiosyncratically cheap trick and, uh, and unique. You didn't hear stuff like that in the commercial clubs where people are going to get drunk this was special yeah i think that because they were in the midwest i they don't get the the kind of historical significance of the stuff that was happening like you were talking about in detroit or you know even it's not what you're describing with the and they talk about the transvestites and cross dresses, and it almost sounds like a Maxis Kansas City type thing that they had oh, going it, on it, right here. It, yeah, it, it, it was, and it was impossible. To, you know, I, I, you know, I've been to the New York clubs and all of that. They, we we didn't really have those, and yet Cheap Trick sort of created that scene out of nothing. In other words, there wasn't there wasn't a Maxis, there wasn't a CBGB, right, or a Mud Club. Uh, they didn't exist, but those things started to grow at Cheap Trick shows. At the very end of Chapter 10, there is one of my favorite scenes that plays out in the book, and Chris Crow, who we just heard from, was there. And he told me about this incident. It took place at Sammy G's Circus, a club in Kenosha, Wisconsin, owned by Sammy Jeromo, who I also talked to. So we will hear Chris Crow recount this incident, then we will hear Sammy G's perspective on the incident, and we will also hear from Bunny Carlos, who at that meeting I had with him and Ken, Bunny also brought up this incident, which took place at Sammy G's Circus in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in probably 1975. Sammy G had his ear bitten off one night and went out the door firing a forty-five at the perpetrator. Didn't hit him, thank God. Was that a cheap trick show? Yeah. <laughs> Sammy G, the owner of the club, had his ear bitten off. And... Yeah. Yeah, he got a chunk of ear removed by teeth and got pissed off. You know, these were pretty... And he chased the guy with a gun? Yeah, with a forty-five shooting it. <laughs> wow. Which is loud. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, but I bit somebody's ear off at that. You uh, that, you they, did the they, biting. <laughs> I, I did the biting. What was that? Well, they had, they came charged the place. A bunch of guys, 
so I took the biggest guy and I got him. I cornered him. He had a, like there was a little corner. But to come into the bar, there was one door swaying out, and the other one you couldn't get out once you got him into this little corner. So I got him down there, the biggest guy, and I got him on the ground, and I bit his ear off. And in front of all his buddies, I drug him out. I spit his ear in front of them, and I said, "Does anybody else want the action?" <laughs> so they all they all went running. Then I ran up and got my gun. And I started firing it up in here. And this was so at a cheap that's trick a true show. Story, the, yeah. And that was at a cheap trick show. I believe it could have been. You know, yeah. it was it was at some show back in there. It was a little hazy. I talked to. How, how did you happen to hear that? How I did talked. You hear it? Well, Bunny remembered something about. Yeah, one night you were getting fights, so you threw a guy out. A guy bit some him or someone in the ear, or he bit someone in the ear. Someone whipped a gun out and shot the tree outside the entry, and we were upstairs. It was right after the show ended, and we like hit the floor. Oh, it was after the outside. show ended. I believe part of it was. It might have started during the last set. Got a little wild up there. But I talked to Chris Crow was the guy who designed their logo, actually, the with you know the type typewritten logo. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he yeah. was he was there and he told me I think he said they tried to take the till from the cash register and you were fighting with him over the till. I think that's how he described no, it. No, they they were after me. They came in uh you know, they didn't get as far as the till. They just barely got in the door. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, they, they, they probably would think it was still. They were definitely after me. Okay. That was there was a jealousy issue in town. You know, all the girls coming in there. Oh, it was over. It was over the I pies. The over, it, was, it was over the pies. Oh yeah. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> and I had the big sign out back. Hi pie. Welcoming the pies. Lit up. It was a beer sign saying hi pie. <laughs> We've arrived at chapter 11, which is named for a line from the lyrics of I Want You to Want Me. We had the cheap trick, the six logo. We got to get shirts made. So in 75, we decided let's get it white on a black t-shirt. We couldn't find black t-shirts. I remember we found one supplier. The like t-shirtery in, in Atlanta, we finally got it. Found black t-shirts. So we had a batch made. We gave them the Lou Reed's crew. That was the first night they were ready. We gave them all the Lou Reed's roadies. Yeah, Fleetwood Mac. And stuff. One showed up in Melody Maker on Nick, with Nick Ralph's wearing it that year in fall of 75. We got a Melody. It's like, one's in England. Uh, that, that got the name out before the music got out. Actually, the t-shirts were out first. Also, we had these stickers made up that all over the Midwest and all the toll booths. We had, we had a batch made where if they well, sat for like three hours, they would take paint off. get them off. So we would go through... <laughs> and we got calls from the state patrol. We would go through toll booths and Rick would go to put the money in and he would do this. Slap one on while dropping the money in because they had people looking for us. You know, and stuff we had like those that. So people, those people came up to us all, we saw your name on the tollway. We saw your name on the tollway. And the last batch we had, we put on Bebop Deluxe's car. So, of course, those shirts and those stickers were emblazoned with the amazing Cheap Trick logo. And at the beginning of Chapter 11, I tell the story of the creation of that logo. And it was created by fan Chris Crow, who we just heard from previously. There's so many things that make them the coolest rock band of all time, in my opinion. But another thing is they have a great name and they have a great logo. Uh, their logo <laughs> is so great. And, of course... Uh, you're the person that created it. Um, I'm sure you've told this story before. And there's that. There's a really good article on CheapDrick.com where that guy talked to you a few years ago. Yeah, seems, a yeah. lot of years ago. I remember, sure. 
what do you remember about creating it or what motivated you? Well, here, you know, again, with the prologue of, you know, everything we've discussed. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was my response, graphic response, to what I saw. And then attended to that is also it was sort of a manifestation of my admiration for what they were trying to do in that kindred spirit shit. That is, that they were alone too, therefore they are friends of mine, we are facing, you know, some of the same challenges. And, uh, you know, and so it was, it was a, you know, a, a thing done, you know, to kind of reflect all that. Again, with none of this, we're kids at the time, we're young, and none of this was, and naive, and none of this was studied by, you know, in terms of their logo, in terms of, you know, my, my feeling for them. It was not studied. I just thought this is, you know, on a gut level, this is great. These guys are like, I, I am or want to be or whatever. We're all striving at the time. You know, I'd like to help them you know, in this tiny way, which is to come up with this, this graphic thing. So I did it. Do you remember the genesis of the idea or the inspiration behind it? Or uh, You know, it's so hard to talk about graphic art, uh, you know, because it's, uh, you know, unlike with music, we can't, uh, <laughs> you know, if you get into sort of the mechanics of music, we could talk yeah. tones and relationships of notes with one another, and it becomes mathematic. Graphic Graphic stuff isn't mathematic. Maybe they'll find some data, but that, that somehow it has some some root in math. But uh, you know, it's just no. You know, it's it's very hard to talk about why you have a graphic feeling uh, for something and say this is correct. This is the way it should be. This is what this should be. It's interesting that logo. <clears throat> you know, and it was. I went on to other things. I got out of art and art, graphic art, and was you know, at the time transitioning to to writing and film and all of that. But uh, I, I sort of started my creative career as a graphic guy. <laughs> you know, it's a graphic thing that just felt right and looked right and all of that. I did work on it. it it's interesting that logo. I've seen it traveling around the world. You can be in Tokyo, of course, and you. And I suppose it, it continues to this day, but, you know, just a few years ago, you'd see that fucking thing everywhere. You'd see it in Berlin on a T-shirt. You'd see it in, in Tokyo on, you know, on, on, uh, on a girl's purse, etc. It was crazy. I went, Jesus Christ, I inadvertently, you know, designed a logo that's, that, that gets as much exposure as not quite Ford and... Uh, <laughs> It's a great logo. You know, <laughs> I have it on my key. I have it on my keychain. Somebody I, just I don't mind it. it, and I, you know, there's a lot of shit that I've done in my life in the creative areas of endeavor, and I don't like it, but I do like that logo. It, it's a good logo. Somebody just posted they're selling a shirt at Target now that just has your logo. Are it's they really? Shirt, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Did you have any other ideas or or other you know additional? versions of no. a logo no it no no you know because it was done on this you know it wasn't done as a commercial and you know event in my life yeah it was it was purity and and either they agreed or they didn't agree and 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 it wasn't you know i you know if i were doing it in a professional setting you would you know you would have alternatives and all of that 
this wasn't done commercially. It was done from the from the heart, and and I said, this is it. This is this is this is the best I can do. Now, to get to that, do you fuck around a lot? Sure, you do. I I spoke with Paula Schur, who des- she was the the designer of the first album cover. Right. And um, so she had a lot to say about your logo. She really loved it, and I I wanted to ask you if maybe you understand what she's talking about because I couldn't really grasp what she was saying. Let me read you what she said. Sure. Yeah, I'd like to hear it. See, I'll tell you why I'm interested. It's not because she's done the, you know, graphics for an album. But that, that album reflected the logo so completely. Yeah. I mean, that, that stark black and white imagery and, and you know, high contrast. Uh, yeah, I'd like to hear what she. Oh yeah, that was all really purposeful. She talked about that, and uh, also I was going to ask you. You know, the the white, black and white checkerboard has kind of become associated with Cheap Trick as a part of their like visual uh, imagery. And do you think that comes from your logo too? I mean, do you it, think that it, was an it, option? It, I mean, I think it. I, I mean, you know, I'd like to hear what Miss Schur has to say, but that wasn't mine. But it. it, it but that harsh. You know, black and white, Saul Bass, you know, anatomy of a murder, you know, uh, graphic approach, black, white, no gray, uh, harshness. Yeah, sure. I mean, I, I get it. I get it. It's thematic. It really is thematic. Yeah, well, she said she thought it was a graphic design joke. Like um, she said, it was making a joke about reproduction, and she thought it was that 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 was smart. There was a little of that here. The way I did it, I mean, the physical, <laughs> you know, stupid <laughs> process was that I set the type, handset, then ran it through an ancient Thermofax machine, which was a heat <laughs> process that that grabbed an image and, and, and regurgitated it by by heating a <laughs> some some fucked up film that they, they used in these machines. And if you overheated it, uh, it would bleed. And and so that's the way it was done. That is it is all about massively stupid reproduction in, in the kind of Warhol used to fuck around with this stuff. Yeah. Uh, but it was not studied. I didn't think of it that way. I, I didn't do it intellectually. You know, as I said, it was done gut. You know, here it is. That's what I think. You know, fuck you. <laughs> <laughs> she said, um, so her quote is, I remember they came in and they had a typewriter smear thing with Cheap Trick done that way, which was a technology joke, you know, because I think it was done maybe e-stat on an early Xerox machine or a cheapy stat camera because that was the yeah, technology. Was all the of those. But yeah, it was. It was Thermofax then, Photostat, post the Thermofax. Cleaned up for, you know, gut, going with gut, you know, enough. I mean, you know, you you got renditions that were, I mean, this was organic. Man, talk about non-digital. This was all fucking bleeding heat <laughs> stuff and you know, and very organic relative to today, you know, and that's why it has some kind of feel, I suppose. It, it, you know, I mean, man, it's overheating the machine and making it do what it did and then cleaning it up and photostatting that and finally getting the original, God knows where that is, the original, original uh, graphic. 
I'll tell you what it looked like. It was on a it was on a piece of illustration board about um, you know a foot less than a foot big. You know, I, you know, maybe it was eight inches by eight inches or something. Yeah, that we by now it's probably peeling and brown, but uh, um, that's how it was delivered. Uh, camera ready. I mean, it was it was done, but it was not typewriter stuff. It was it was handset type by a company now gone because they don't do it this way anymore called Letraset. Uh, oh, so it was not a ty- you didn't furnished- use a typewriter. No, it was not a typewriter. Oh, no, it wow. Was, it was a typewriter font from them, but then massively fucked with. So moving on as we go through the book, chapter 12 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Downed. And that chapter covers the summer of 1975, the beginning of Hammer Guitars, and the story behind the song, Oh Candy. Chapter 13 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Take Me, I'm Yours. Got a new approach. And this is the chapter when the band goes to Los Angeles to perform at the Starwood. They meet Kim Fowley, and they have a flirtation with signing with Capitol Records. Chapter 14 is named for a lyric from the song Taxman Mr. Thief. And this is the chapter when they meet producer Jack Douglas. Chapter 15 is named for a lyric from the Terry Reed song that Cheap Trick covers on their first album, Speak Now or Forever Hold Your Peace. In chapter 15, there's a lot more record label interest. And there's also an incident with Bunny Carlos. He has an accident that proves to be a minor setback, but the band overcomes that. Chapter 16 is named for a lyric from an early Cheap Trick song that has never been released called Son of a Gun. Chapter 16 covers the band signing with a management agency and finally signing their record deal. Chapter 17 is named for a lyric from the song Southern Girls. And in chapter 17, the band travels to New York City to record their first album at the record plant with Jack Douglas. And they perform at Max's Kansas City. Chapter 18 is named for a lyric from the song High Roller. Chapter 18, they've now recorded the album. They go back to play in the clubs. And they get an opportunity to open two shows for Queen in Milwaukee and Madison. Chapter 19 is named for a lyric from the Cheap Trick song, Violins. And Chapter 19 is about the first album. Chapter 20 is named for a lyric from an early Cheap Trick song that has not been officially released. It's called Blow Me Away, also referred to as Flame Burning in My Heart. And chapter 20, I cover all of the marketing. Epic Records actually had a big marketing push for the band and they got a ton of press. So chapter 20 is a very entertaining chapter about all of the press that the band received. Chapter 21 is named for a lyric from the song, Oh Caroline. And Chapter 21 essentially sees the band leaving the clubs. They become a support act for a lot of 
more established bands. This is in part due to having signed with a large talent management booking agency, ICM. And by the end of Chapter 21, the band is back out in Los Angeles to record their second album with producer Tom Werman. The favorite band I, I ever produced. Right, yeah. Yeah, I mean, far, far and away. Just a great, productive, funny, uh, smart group. Every one of them. Chapter 22 is named for a lyric from one of the very first songs that Rick Nielsen wrote for this band, Cheap Trick, called Daddy Should Have Stayed in High School. And Chapter 22 covers the band going out on tour with Kiss. This is the summer of 1977. And also the discovery of a band out in Tucson called Cheap Tricks. T-R-I-X, and towards the end of the chapter, we get into their second album, In Color. Chapter 23, the final chapter before the epilogue, is named for a lyric from Dream Police. Don't get paid to take vacations. And chapter 23, we get to the recording of the band's third album, Heaven Tonight, and they head over to Europe on tour with Kansas, and right after that tour, short tour of Europe, the band is going to head over to Japan. But a big part of chapter 23 is the description of the creation of the original, very first 12-string bass guitar, which was an idea that Tom Peterson had that was made a reality by Paul Hamer's partner at Hamer Guitars, Joel Danzig. At the time, there was, there was just nothing like it. It was like the, the stage show was spectacular. The songs were different and sounded great. They sounded different. And uh, it was just the kind of thing that people were just were wowed. It, it almost seemed like they could come into a club and there would be, you know, a, a decent turnout. But by the next time they played that club, it would be standing room only. You know, it was just like people would just be packed in there because the, because the buzz was so big. That's what Joel had to say about the band. Let's hear Joel talking about creating the 12-string bass. What I recall is that we had doubts that the neck could take the tension of all those strings. And uh, so we decided to make a 10-string bass first. And, uh, and when that worked, then we realized, okay, well, this is really manageable. Let's put 12 strings on it and see what happens. And, and it worked. So, you know, the, the truth of the matter is that Tom wanted the 12-string from the beginning. He had been playing an 8-string bass, a Hagstrom 8-string bass, which is a Scandinavian company that made 8-string made basses. They weren't that uncommon, but, uh, you know, I am sure he was, he's, you know, there's an instrument called the tipple, T-I-P-L-E, that's, uh, has three string groups of three strings just like the 12 string bass so you know i'm sure that uh you know at nielsen music they probably had one (laughs) so it was probably stuck in his mind but it was his idea to make the 12 string bass and uh you know we took the baby step the 10 string and then we moved on to the 12 string and just never looked back 
So we've arrived at the epilogue of the book, which is really another chapter. It's 11 pages long, and a lot happens, a lot of great details. But let's close out the episode here with a great story that is in the epilogue of the book. We're going to hear from Carrie Baker. Carrie was a music writer. He's quoted multiple times in the book. He wrote for a local Rockford paper called Lively Times, and there was a Chicago magazine called Triad that he wrote for. And we're going to hear Carrie tell a story here, and then we're going to hear some of the actual radio broadcast that Carrie references. I, I had an on-air audition for an interview show, a rock and roll interview show on uh, Y95, and uh, my first interview subject, Rick Nielsen. And uh, I hadn't even calculated or suspected or, 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 you know, let my mind entertain the possibility that Rick might be playing with me or, or making this difficult for me. But he, <laughs> he certainly did. He, uh, I mean, he, did, he didn't make it easy for me. He, uh, and I, I was just, you know, a, a basically innately shy, Midwest college student, uh, you know, I had a real good opportunity here. Uh, I, I thought I might even have a future in radio. Uh, but he, uh, you know, every question, he just sort of, uh, he was real cynical and uh, uh, gave, gave kind of cynical answers, and that was that. I didn't hate him for it, and, you know, uh, we went on being friends, but, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what got into him that day or why he decided to do that, but needless to say, I didn't get the job. And, uh, um you know, Armin did me a favor and didn't even call me. He just, that, that was that. It made its own on-air statement. So I didn't get that job. But that, that's cool. Uh, you know, I, I, I hunkered down in, in print journalism, and that's probably where I needed to be until I started my career at record company. Our interview that you've all been waiting for and have been calling all day about, uh, we have uh, three of the four members of Cheap Trick in the studio with us. And uh, Carrie Baker is going to be uh, conducting the interview. So at this time, I'll turn it over to you, Carrie, and uh, take it away. Rick Nielsen, Robin Zander, Tom Peterson, and Bunny Carlos, collectively known as Cheap Trick, are back in the USA following tours of Europe and Japan. The continent of Europe has long been a market for the band. Hello Kitties was a hit single, and their first two LPs sold pretty well. But more recently, J Japanese fans welcomed the band as if they were aristocracy. They landed in Tokyo on April 22nd to the flash of press photographers. They were whisked away from the cheering crowds through the back exits, and when they arrived in their hotel, the scene was more fans and more cameras still. While in Japan, Cheap Trick was interviewed by Japan's two leading music magazines, Music Life and... Thank you, Rick. Come on, get with it. You're welcome. Both of which planned to feature the band on the covers of their May editions. Guitarist Rick Nielsen received an award an award from Player Magazine, a custom-built, one-of-a-kind special Rick Nielsen Ibanez guitar. Music Life Magazine shows Cheap Trick as the brightest hope of the year, topping the category with almost 40,000 votes. Their Japanese single, Clock Strikes Ten from the In Color album, is number four in Tokyo, with sales of In Color exceeding 47,000 copies. Their third album, Heaven Tonight, was released in Japan before anywhere else in the world. Americans are still waiting. In one Japanese city, 600 screaming fans mobbed the airport as the band landed, having to be physically restrained by police. The hysteria level at the concert was so high that the local promoter warned them that if Rick threw any of his guitar picks into the audience, the promoter would shut down the show in fear of a riot. Nat naturally, the band refused to ob oblige. Clock strike 10 is... <laughs> Quit throwing the picks. 
<laughs> Clock Strike 10 has been the number one single in the area for six consecutive weeks. The new single, the title, title track from Heaven Tonight, sold more than 4,000 copies in one day. It's quite a success story. How do you account for your success across the Pacific? Gee, Carrie, you do that so smooth. <laughs> that was terrible. You're supposed to be a writer. You should be able to read stuff. That was written by uh, Susan Blonde in uh, New York, and she sent that to you, Carrie, and I thought you could pronounce those big words. Well, what was your question? I'm sorry. <laughs> How do you account for your success in Japan? Well, uh, they like our music, just like they do in Rockford, and just like they do in Madison, and it was just... It was our first tour there, and uh, it was a lot of fun. They have an active promoting staff? Hey, look, who's going to get technical, you know? <laughs> Who knows about that? Nah, they like the way Bunny plays the drums, and Robin sings, and the way I play guitar, and, Bunny, and Tom plays the bass. That's it. Who knows about all that other stuff? They like our records. I already said that. What's Japanese radio like? Is anything like we have in the States? Uh, yeah, except you can't understand it unless you know Japanese. It's simple as that. Otherwise, the music's the same. Did your Japanese fans give you any interesting trinkets or tokens of their appreciation? No. Well, who, uh, who produced this album? Well, you already know that. What are you asking me for? After working with uh, two different producers, how do you find that their techniques differed? Uh, what, what did you think Jack Douglas uh, offered you on album number one as opposed to Worman on two and three? Well, he offered us more drugs in the, station, in the studio, but of course, uh, I don't take any, so... Just kidding, Carrie. Gee, don't get... <laughs> Don't look so long in the face. Have you thought about album number four? Of course. And five, and six. And seven? Yeah, well, as a matter of fact, we just, uh, when we were in Japan, we recorded three nights there. We recorded two nights in Tokyo, and one night in Osaka. So there'll be a live album in Japan coming out there, I believe, on August 21st. Released just in Japan? I believe just released in Japan. Maybe it'll become... And imported uh, by Jim. import, or radio station promotion copies and stuff like that. Like the uh, the Nils Lofgren authorized A&M promo bootleg. Well, I don't know about that, Gary. You're, Just like that. You're, you're more into that kind of stuff than me. Whoa. I don't know. Hey, this has been real neat being here at uh, YFE today, and thanks a lot for having us out here. And Well, thanks for coming.
I, this band called the Daiquiris in Rockford in the 60s when I was in high school, they, they had a couple guys that stood on stage and played and they'd, they'd light up a cigarette and a song and be playing and I always thought, I smoke, I'd like to do that too someday, you know, how come I gotta quit smoking when I'm on stage? So I just started doing it. Rick and Tom in 71 in Germany saw Rod Stewart in the faces. They had a wind PA that was just like this huge wall on a field and they were probably drinking and tripping or something and they thought it was the greatest thing they ever heard. So we had to buy a wind PA. Oh. So we got this PA shipped in from England after we went to the bank and can we get a loan? Set it up at, the, at Waverly? Yeah. We got one side working. We took it to Michigan, I remember, for the brewery or whatever that place was called in Lansing. East Lansing. We blew it up. We yeah. blew it up in one night. Done. <laughs> And we paid, took a year, we paid the thing off and it all ended up the letters from Luck and so they couldn't yeah. figure out why we didn't like it. It was a piece of junk. They said they wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't the pay lawyers got involved. legal fees. CBS they said Richard Speck victims would sue if we called yeah. it the ballot of Richard yeah. Speck. And they didn't want the album to get injuncted and they didn't want legal fees and they said if we call it Richard Speck, they won't back us on it. So it really wasn't much of a question, the title kind of had to go. But that was all the way like when the album was already recorded and about to be pressed and everything? Or, I don't know, it, had yeah. been, it had been the Valor of Richard Speck you know, for over a year and then uh, so, and it wasn't, uh, not the end of the world, you know? Yeah.
And that was episode 71 right here on Cheap Talk. I am Ken, and this is... Brian J. Cramp. Yes, the author, the one, the only. And we'll be back on the next episode of Cheap Talk right here. Except no substitutes. Say see you, BJ. Buenas noches. Bye-bye. <laughs> Suicide! <laughs> and that's our show. Trick Chat is an online nonprofit audio fanzine made by fans for fans. Any samples of music or interviews heard remain property of their owners. We are not related to Cheap Trick or any of their members past or present. If you hear anything you like from the band, go on Amazon or iTunes to buy it. If you enjoyed this show, like us on Facebook and rate us on iTunes. Thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm your announcer, Chelsea Epstein, saying keep cheap trickin'.